0: No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Out of the street corners they scream. You knew it was coming. You've been waiting for this for months. Rumor hardened into fear and now they scream at you. The sirens. Their hysterical wail tearing through the white noise of the city. And you run. You run to pick up those things that can never be replaced. A picture of them in the days when they still loved you. Your mother's wedding ring. And then you turn to your shelf of games. You only have room for five. Five Games for Doomsday. Five Games for Doomsday is a show in which board game personalities are thrust into a cabin in the woods to outrun an oncoming disaster, but can only take five of their games with them. But which will they choose? My guest this week is a man that has squeezed a lot out of life. He's been a professional magic player, an Alaskan fishing boat captain and a convention founder. He's also a designer and publisher and head of North Star Games. He's had a hand in oceans, evolutions, say anything, and wits and wagers, all of which are incredibly popular. My guest this week is Dominic Crapuchet. Dominic, welcome to The Cabin. Hey, thank you for inviting me here. So my first question is, is uh, how difficult was it for you to choose the five games to take to The Cabin?
2: Oh, I mean, not that difficult, I guess, because I'm time pressured. I had to figure them out pretty quickly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you know, what was the criteria you used? Was there was it just simple utility? It was something you could get the most game out of, or was there any sort of sentimentality attached?
2: Um, that's a good question. Uh, a good part of it was um the amount of gameplay packed into it, um. A good part of it was games that I cannot normally play because I run a company and I have a family. And so, for instance, wait, am I not supposed to say what any of them yeah, are? Yeah,
1: right? there'll they'll be a big surprise later. Oh, yeah. Oops. Um, so refer so, to them as one of the games on the list. One of the mystery games. <laughs> Um, so I get to play
2: games with my, my son loves games. And so we play, you know, short, fun family games. So, so I chose games that I don't get to play, not necessarily what would be my favorite games under like best circumstances, but games that don't get played as much as I wish.
1: And, you know, you're a, you're a man who spent time on a boat in cramped quarters. Uh, Has that had an effect on sort of, your game collection? Because I was lamenting. I went on a trip the other week and I took games with me and I was lamenting being a board gamer because every time I go away, I have to lug these big bags of of boxes with me. What's your game collection like? Is it broad and expansive or or are you sort of a minimalist with that?
0: Well,
2: so very interesting. It's very interesting that you should ask. I am a complete minimalist. I hate stuff yet my board game collection is <laughs> way way bigger than it should be. So I mean I'm constantly hounding on everyone in the family to just throw things away, but they I don't take that advice with my games. I have let's see, I'm going to guess maybe 250 games. <laughs> but I I I throw them away continually and buy them continually. I mean like you know pass them on. So so it's deceiving to say 250 because um I've probably purchased 700 games in my life maybe a thousand
1: and you know is is this a problem this minimalism is this the problem being a publisher because i assume you want to have copies of the games you've made on your shelves and that must take up some space right yeah
2: so i've got copies of my games but i mean really that's we we, um we don't release a lot of games so that's just maybe 10 games
1: Mm.
2: um no, I, I, my problem now is I keep thinking, ah, this is a game I can get my family to play. And really, I can get my son to play it and my daughter now, but my wife really does not like playing games. But I keep hoping. Hope springs eternal for me.
1: So I want to go back to the beginning. So where did you grow up and what kind of childhood did you have? It was horrible childhood. We Expand. We, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Getting a little bit.
2: Um... So my family did not watch any television and it was not a horrible horrible childhood but um we played a lot of games my my dad was raised as uh, by missionaries in China and so there was kind of an anti in fact movies were sinful when he was mm. being raised and so i don't think it was that movies were sinful or television it was just that we didn't do it and so we had family time most every night and we played board games three or four nights a week. And so, uh, board games were always my favorite form of entertainment. It was just kind of something I did. Um, and then I, I, you know, started watching television really after college with my girlfriend. And that's when I first kind of started listening to pop music and, and, um, kind of, kind of becoming more culturally, I don't know, whatever the word is like with the times,
1: And so was, was religion quite apparent in the household growing up?
2: Um, maybe when I was very young. So my, so I'm, I'm not a believer and nor is half my family. Mm. Um, so it, it, there was just kind of religious undertones. Like we, you know, we went to church until, I don't know, but I, I learned that my dad didn't believe in God when I was pretty young, um, so I, I don't think of it as super religious, but that's just kind of where m- my family heritage comes from. Hmm.
1: And so you, you said you were, you know, you were playing games as a kid. What kind of games were you playing?
2: Well, so depending on the age, my dad taught me chess when I was four. And then I got, ent- I say I got entered into chess tournaments. I mean, I wanted to go, but it was really more of my dad's dream than mine. Um... And then we played Hearts and Spades and Charades and Sorry and Monopoly and Risk. You know, all all the games you would expect. Um, And then in addition, we played um, Acquire pretty young. Mm -hmm. And then I I was playing, I played Diplomacy in 7th grade and Dungeons and Dragons. um, And some heavier war games, like, you know, 3M games. Uh, I remember having Panzer Blitz and some, some like, war games. So, I mean, we just played a lot of games. I mean, like, whatever was available at the time.
1: And, and so, you know, you you did chess competitions. Do you think that sort of being in a competitive arena sets you up for competitive magic later in life? Oh, definitely. Definitely.
2: Yeah, so sometimes um, games play one specific role in people's lives. Games for me were like a a form of entertainment that, that fit in a lot of different places. So we'd play a lot of party games with family reunions. We would play competitively with chess with my dad uh, that led into magic. And so it's games have fit in my life in lots of meeting a lot of different needs as opposed to like some people play games only competitively or, you know, in a, only specific or only party games, you know. Uh our family really just used games as like a, just an interactive form of entertainment.
1: And so you said in the notes that you sent me that you designed a game and it was banned from <laughs> class in eighth grade. Can you tell us that story? Yeah,
2: um, sure. I mean, so that's basically what happened. The, the game came out of, I guess, my chess playing And we were playing in school this game where you draw like a tank on a sheet of paper and then you take a pencil and you flick it and the tank moves and then you shoot their tanks and you erase the tank and put it where it's at. Did you ever play that game?
1: Uh, Similar things for sure.
2: And so um, some of us got really good at the pencil moving. I don't know. for For some reason, I wanted to turn that into a board game. And so I kind of created a war game. That um, it had action points. This is way back in like the early '80s, so mm-hmm. way before any any game that I know of it had action points. But it had action points, and you had four action points. You t- you took your turn was kind of four turns, and um, you tried to uh, destroy their flag. So it was kind of like a more strategic stratego, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then um, people just started playing it. And uh, it, it used, to, it, you know, it started off with just me and my friends, so kind of a circle of three, and then kind of a circle of like five friends, and then it just took off for some reason, and people were playing. And the thing, the, it was, it's, it's played on graph paper, and so you kind of rip the graph paper in half. You set up your side, kind of st- like Stratego. You have like a certain amount of points to buy stuff with. Then you tape it together. You take your turn during class, and then you give it to them you know, in between class, and then they take it to class and they take their turn. And so hmm. there were like 20 plus people doing this and it just got disruptive in class. And so they finally banned it.
1: And so was that your first foray into designing?
2: Um, no, I, I've always, well, not always. Now, that was probably my third or fourth completed design. But, I, you know, I had lots of little tinkerings that I'd never completed just as a kid.
1: And I, I, I asked someone this recently, and they answered in the negative. Um, do you think that you have some sort of natural aptitudes to see through the mechanics of a game, to see how a game comes together? Because I'm, I'm a very enthusiastic gamer, but when it comes to sort of trying to make a game myself, my brain just doesn't function in that way. Do you think you're sort of naturally predisposed to that sort of design?
2: Um, I don't know. I, I think I, I have a lot of experience with it, so I'm not going to say like it's in my DNA and if, you know, if I had been raised in a different family that, that really liked film and movies, maybe I would have, you know, gone into film. So, so I, I don't know if it's like I'm born with it, but I, but definitely through just years and years of practice and it just being part of my world, you know, so. That's just how I ch- found, like, my creative outlet.
1: And so when when I was a kid, so I'm an actor now, when I was a kid I was always on the stage, but I, I never really, it never really solidified into any sort of desire to do it as a job until sort of my late teens. Have you always wanted to make games from those early days of designing disruptive games in the eighth grade? <laughs>
2: Um, no, I don't think so. I, I remember, I mean, I don't think I, you know, had any ideas of what I wanted to do when I grew up. I, I, I wanted to be a race car driver. I remember when I was like five. Um, so it wasn't until high school when I had to actually think about what am I going to do? And, uh, and that's when I decided I wanted to start a, a game company and, and, um, and I wrote like a uh, my final paper in economics. I'm not sure why it was an economic paper, but um I guess I just used school to do whatever I wanted to do was it was a business plan to try to uh for for this a game company that I wanted to start
1: so your first game then is a game that frankly scares the hell out of me, and that's why I haven't played it yet and this is teach you so you you wrote a little note in the notes you sent me saying why you're taking this game to the cabin. Are you trying to cheat by taking
0: ah,
2: Oh, yeah, of course.
1: <laughs> yeah, so,
2: um, I mean, Tissue is awesome. So, I mean, that is a really fun game to play, but then it's just a deck of cards, so you can play mm. whatever deck of card games you want. like and so, poker. is this the king of trick-taking games, do you think? Um. Well, I think of it as a climbing game. Mm. Um, I don't think of it as, like, the king because I could not play with my family, I tried a bunch, um, and and then I designed a game, clubs, specifically, so that I could teach like casual gamers. Mm. And clubs is is a much better game when you're playing with casual gamers because they get it and they can play it and they enjoy it and they want to play again. Uh, Tissue they don't get and they don't want to play again and it's too much. So I don't really think of like. So when I think of a game as being better than another game, it's for a specific situation. I don't think of, like, one game as a king of all games. I think of this is a great game for a group of gamers mm. stuck in a cabin before they're going to die.
1: Uh, I remember when I was when I was sort of 13 or 14, I went to a Whist drive, and I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar what that is, but it's a, it's an event where... We play Whist, which is a which is a a trick-taking game. And you you sit on one table and throughout the night you move around each table and you have a different partner. And all of the people attending this whist drive were sort of hatchet-faced old women who'd been playing whist for fifty years. And I just remember I played the wrong card once, and one of the women sucked in through her teeth, and it was the most degrading noise I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> And you strikes me a bit like this because it's a partner game. Do you have to play it a lot to get good at it? And is there, you, you know, you say that it's for gamers. If I were to play it, never having played it before, do you think I would have a disastrous time?
2: Well, I hope not. I mean, it depends. Don't play with that lady.
1: <laughs> I mean, she, I am. I assume she's long dead now, so that's not an issue.
2: Um I mean it's great. Hopefully you're not playing with someone that's going to be rude or care about winning that much. Um I I play on an app. That's where I've played the most. Is on an app. And it's just it's just a great game. I mean, it gives you a lot of, you know, options and control and th- something which I just love in games which is you can take risks. And so you're mitigating, you're like, you're trying to figure out how risky you want to be. And, you know, if you do something too risky, a lot of times it falls flat on your face and you go, oh yeah. All right. Well, I tr- I, tr- I that was too risky, <laughs> but figuring out like how much to bite off is just a interesting, you know, especially with a deck of cards, you know, they just get shuffled in so many different ways and you're mm-hmm. trying to figure out, um, how much can you bite off in, in, you know, with this, with this hand.
1: So I want to move on now and talk about a previous job of yours. And so you worked 12 seasons on an Alaskan fishing boat. Firstly, how does someone get a job on one of these things and and what were you actually doing?
2: So I captained 12 seasons. I worked longer, much wow. longer. Um my my dad uh I took over my my dad's operation. So Every year of my life since I was two, my family would go up to Alaska. Uh, My dad was fishing beforehand, so I guess when I was one, I didn't. Um, And there were just dirt roads, and I remember – wait, what do I remember this? I must not have been two. I must have been like three because – or maybe it was the second year. Anyways, I remember wandering through dirt roads trying to find a place to stay. Where are we going to stay tonight? (laughs) and we were get, and we finally found like um an old abandoned house that someone said we could stay on and it had like you know broken floorboards and um and uh, an outhouse and um so i remember every year we we went into that house and we lived there while my dad was on the boat and i made friends with dogs and you know <laughs> running through the tundra and then at some point my mom started an operation A fishing operation which is a set net and the tides where we're at are huge and so they go up and down between maybe 15 feet and 30 feet and so when the tide's down you'd stake out a net and when the tide comes up you'd catch fish the tide would go down and you'd you'd take the fish out and you'd wash them and clean them because they're in the mud and then and then they would get planed off by small planes that flew off the beach Um, and so I worked on my mom's set net site for I don't know how many years
0: daily bonuses that should brighten your day little. actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw avoid or prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus and then then they would
2: fly in water and you'd eat salmon and and you'd just get jugs of water flown in and um then at some point i worked on my dad's boat and then uh when my dad kind of stopped fishing then i then i worked on someone else's boat for a while and then I took over my dad's operation when I was, I guess, 18.
1: And yeah, so, so what kind of things are you doing on the boat? Uh, it is an intense
2: world. Uh, somewhat dangerous. I mean, people die every year. So hmm. it was two to five deaths a year. Um, but it's, it's the largest run of salmon in the world coming in the smallest period of time. So you're uh, as a as a captain or a crew member, you're managing sleep and you're also managing as a captain kind of the, the long arc of the season, meaning, you know, kind of like people follow the Tour de France. Um, you can win any one day. I mean, you know, some people can win any one day, mm. but but to really win the whole race, you've got to pace yourself in the right way. And I've seen, you know, I I started uh, noticing a pattern where one of our uh, people in our fishing group was just, he would be ahead of everyone in his running total for the first half of the season. And then he would end a much lower, he would end Mm. like top 75%. And so I kind of learned from him, the mistakes of like pushing your crew too hard early. And in fact, I got at one point when I kind of learned this, I had to, holding them back and say, go slower, go slower. You're going to burn out. You're going to, so you work so hard that your hands start to seize up by the end of the season. Um, and, and you're managing sleep. So you have to figure out like, how long are we sleeping? You know, how how do I make it so that at the end of the season, my crew members aren't so burnt out that they just want to leave because the, you know, the pull on the captain at some point when everyone's just like, let's go home. I want to get out of here. Um, is really strong and and soon after like, you know, listening to them and leaving early and then hearing other people catch, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 worth of fish after we left started, you know, just learning how to pace the whole thing.
1: And and so do you spend, so how long is the season? And do you spend the entire time on the boat?
2: So it was, um, I, I would come up between six and eight weeks and the first week, we're fixing up the boat, the boat's dry docked. So it's, it's on land and we're living on it. And we're, we're getting the radio ready, getting, putting that, getting the engine uh, you know, up and running, um, and just, and getting all of our nets ready. And then we're going out and fishing preseason, uh, to just make sure that everything's working mm-hmm. and, and the season then, you know, at some point just goes full speed. It's the first regulated fishery, I think in the world and so it's, it's regulated extremely well and they'll open it for eight hours, close it, open it, you know, then it'll be closed for a couple of days. They'll open it. And so they, they're getting information on where the fish are and how much fish there are by, by allowing the fishermen to catch. And the, hmm. the biologists want an optimal escapement. So if too many fish escape, uh, you know, go up river to spawn, there's not enough food and they all die off. And if hmm. not enough, you know, so they, they have, they're like managing it and trying to get diversity of like. Anyways, I won't go into all that detail there, but, um, so it starts off kind of slow and by the middle of the season, they're starting to open it up 24 hours, then they'll, you know, extend it another 24. And so you'll work just 48 hours straight if you think it's going to get closed. Uh, and then soon it just gets wide open. And so then you're just kind of figuring out when do we stop fishing? When do we sleep? And, all, and, and you base that on the cycle of the fish.
1: And so it strikes me as one of those jobs. There, there are certain sort of certain jobs that are incredibly hard, but you do them for a short period of time, and that sort of lasts you over 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 an extended period of time. I mean, what is the money like working on one of those boats, and does it does it last you the rest of the year?
2: Yeah, so it does for a lot of people. Um, I I put myself through school, so I was earning about twenty five to fifty thousand a year this is in the 90s mm. um so it was it was good money and it was helping me pay my way through college um the 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 boat owner like if i had bought into that operation and i i ended up being a very good one of the very good captains i would probably clear 100 to 250 in those eight
1: weeks mm which is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. So is there anything, you know, apart from apart from making you money is there anything a job like that can teach you that you can take into the rest of your life? Did you just say teach you? Yeah, teach you as opposed to <laughs> teach you the card game.
2: Um yeah, I mean there's a ton of things that it taught me. Um that that that's really where I kind of grew up, I would say, kind of went from being a kid into being an adult. Uh, lo- I mean, lots of life skills, uh, learning how to work in a team under high stress environments. Uh, you know, working as a team is really, really important. And um, and then learning how to pace your, mean, in that environment, you have to pace yourself. I mean, that that was one of the critical things. And there's just, I mean, there's so many life lessons Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to, I think, extract any, you know, like one, two or three of them. Mm.
1: So your next game then is Manhattan Project. So why are you taking this one to the cabin?
2: This is an underloved game. It's just a great game. And so I don't get to play it anymore. Um, when it came out, I had a few friends that I played it with and I've probably played it. I don't know, 10, 15 times Mm. and I love it. It's just great.
1: And so, is there something about the theme of this game that appeals to you? No, that is not it. <laughs> I don't <laughs> dislike
2: the theme, but um, no, it's just a really um, good worker placement game, and it's 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 fairly simple and has a lot of interesting gameplay and a lot of diversity. So i, I it's I admire the the uh, I admire the design.
1: And so, you know, I've played this, and what struck me is that it, it has a sort of irreverent, satirical feel to it. It's taking what is ostensibly a very, very serious subject and, and making dark jokes about it. Do you think board games suffer from a dearth of satire? Is it something that board games need, do you think?
2: Um, I haven't really thought about that. I mean, I I love how diverse the the creatives are in this space. I mean, board games can be used to express so many different things, and it's being used as an art form now, which is which Mm. is like makes me ecstatic. So, yeah, I mean, if if people want to express satire and people want to like play in that world, it hopefully it'll get done more.
1: So, I want to talk now about your time as a professional magic player. So how does I assume you entered magic like everyone else does, sort of fairly casually. How do you get to the level where you're you're on the circuit, you're making money playing the game? <laughs> you just become a
2: fanatic. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you you waste a lot more time than you should. Let's see. I think I wasn't playing chess. I stopped playing chess in, in high school because there was kind of a stigma against it. Is that why? I don't know. I started playing D&D. Actually, D&D was just more fun. Um, so, I don't know, but I had this interest in, in competition clearly in my blood. I, I don't know about interest, but it was just kind of something that had been a part of my life. Um, magic really captivated my imagination. Hmm. So, I just loved it. I loved thinking about games. I mean, it was mostly deck building. It's kind of the fun part for me of about magic, it is the creative aspect where you're creating decks and you're optimizing them, you're trying to make them good, and the environment's changing, and you're you're modifying it within the environment
1: so do you think a large part of the attraction to magic exists away from the table with that deck building element nearly a hundred percent for me
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean the thing is. If you don't play, then it's not fun to just tinker with the decks without playing. Mm. Like the fun part is playing with a deck you created and seeing what happens and then tinkering with it and then playing and tinkering. And so it, it's really, I, I, I guess they kind of go hand in hand. You can't really have fun with one without the other. For me, I like, I don't enjoy just the playing. If someone hands me a deck, like my son, and, and we play some, he loves it. I just don't enjoy the gameplay that much. Hmm. It's you know, I'm not going to say it's horrible, but the the fun part for me is the the creative side, and then watching and seeing how it does.
1: And and to what extent is being a top level magic payer, uh, magic player, pay to play? How much money do you have to spend to assemble these these really good decks?
2: <laughs> well, um, I I uh, I mean the 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 industry was exploding when i got into it so i made a lot of money with the cards so i didn't mm-hmm. I, I i got paid so i bought sets and sold them for double like you know months later um so so i had at at my height like $30,000 worth of cards in fact i've looked now if i had waited to sell them um they'd be worth $250,000 right now <laughs> so i had a lot of cards so so, and this was before the pro tournament. And so you really, to win the tournaments that I was winning, and I was winning money just b- before there was a pro tournament, a pro scene, um, you, you, you had to pay money and you needed a really expensive deck. Um, you could make it into the kind of the quarterfinals on a very cheap deck, like, a, you know, create Lightning Bolt, g- Giant Growth, all bunch of commons. But it was really tough to win without some of the power cards. Um, but what I was really good at was, um, sealed deck. Mm. So it was not pay to play at all. It was just open up cards, draft. And, and that, that was kind of my, that, that's what I, that was my bread and butter on the pro circuit.
1: And so, you know, games for me are, are very much the playing of them at least, a very much sort of recreation. I'm, I'm, I my brain simply doesn't work in a way to be good enough to sort of enter events and things. I mean, what's the environment like in that scene? We, we get, we get an impression of super nerds and that there's, there's a, that it, that it's quite sort of aggressive and mean. Is that true? Or is it, or is it a cordial environment?
2: Um, it has, there's all kinds And I mean, part of the reason I left is I really did not like the environment of players. There are, you know, obnoxious cheaters and there's a little bit too many boys in a basement testosterone going Mm. on for sure. Um, But there was also like um, the teams that came out of college is like CMU or Harvard. um, And and those people were, you know, a lot nicer and more honest and um so, so I'd say that it ran the gambit, but if it leaned any way, it leaned in, in a negative way, which is mm. part of what why I wanted to leave.
1: And and do you think it's changed over over the intervening years? I doubt it. I mean, just the way that it's set
2: up and who it's set up to attract and how it's set up to, like, extract as much money from these people as possible. I mean, it's... I think gaming in general has opened up and it's less boys in a basement, Mm -hmm. but I feel like if any place has stayed the same, it's going to be the magic world, (laughs) the competitive magic world.
1: And so what are your favorite memories of that time? I mean, you, you did it for a while, so there must, there must be some good elements there.
2: Oh yeah. Well, so I love creating games and playing. Like I, I, I just love the game magic. Um, so but not necessarily playing the game magic as much because the fun is like creating these decks and then seeing how they work and then tinkering you know and so that's the fun for me um and seeing new cards and uh, you know thinking about synergies and oh my god this would work so well with this and what about this um that's just a really fun thing for my brain to think about for some reason um really good memories i mean traveling with friends to pro tournaments so you know germany or uh on the queen mary in long beach california mm-hmm. chicago and so you know we uh, uh new orleans so i mean th- those are the the fun times is, is when you have a good group of friends that um that kind of enjoy it in the same way and, and are and are nice to each other because I've also been with people in the magic world where they're they're like so competitive they're kind of mean to each other. Mm. Um,
1: So those are the best memories. And so your next game is Magic then. So explain your love for this game. How did did that develop? When did you first come across Magic and how long did it take you to become obsessed? Um, My
2: friend showed it to me in like 93 or no earlier 90. I don't know. Maybe, maybe 93. Yeah. I don't know. Very, very early, like around the first year that it was out, maybe second. Um, and he just took a deck and cut it in half of random cards and we played. And I was like, okay, you know, I just, I didn't like it that much. Hmm. Um, driving home from college, I stopped at a game store and um they had magic singles and i was like what you buy individual cards and they're like yeah and I'm like why do you i was like trying to understand it's like oh well, you make your own deck And i was like you make a deck you choose the cards in your deck i mean i was hooked just from that concept mm. to me that was just so exciting i was like oh my god this is a good card what about you know i'm like just thinking about all of the ways they synergize um yeah, I was. I, I then I was immediately hooked, and I just I started playing a lot.
1: I, I've done this. I've done this show for nearly four years now, and, and Magic: The Gathering is a game that comes up a lot. Do you think that a lot of game designers have cut their teeth on constructing Magic decks? And do you think it taught you anything about game design?
2: Oh God, yes. Yeah. So. Oh, there's a lot of people from the pro circuit when I played who've gone into designing board games. So um, White Wizard Games, uh, started by Magic player. Same with uh, Stoneblade Entertainment, Justin Gary, who did Ascension. So Ascension, Star Realms, um, Epic. I mean, there's so, there's there's a lot of people who cut their teeth in Magic. And for a good reason, because getting good at playing Magic is is being good at game design. Mm. And I mean, we tend towards card synergistic games, which are awesome because the reason that we love them is the cards interact with each other in emergent ways, like things that are not immediately obvious. And you learn about these synergies and you're like, oh, wow, I hadn't seen how this was going to work and it's just it's kind of like a scientist discovering things about the world around them you know they're excited when they learn something new that was unexpected and that's that's kind of like i think what it's like at least for me
0: lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky
2: lucky
1: and how has magic changed over the years not not just mechanically mechanically but also sort of in its regard within society do you think it's become sort of a, a cultural institution in a way that many games just simply don't
2: um i don't know That's a good question i mean i'm i don't follow it anymore i my son loves it and i don't know how much he loves it because he knew that knows that I was a pro player. Mm. Um, but I don't think it's just that. You know, because people at Summer Camp play. Pokemon, they just trade. They're just mm. speculating. They're just like a stock market for them. Um but but magic they play. And um I think the game itself is really tapped into something that boys like. I think boys like being able to buy cards that make their deck better. I think people... I think they like having an edge from outside the game. It sounds very, like, the opposite of meritocracy. It sounds bad. But I I do think there's something, like, attractive to them about, like, I can get better by just getting my parents to buy a better (laughs) card.
1: And and so, sort of, how big a shadow does Richard Garfield cast over modern gaming, do you think?
2: Well, he's a great game designer even outside of Magic.
1: Mm.
2: Um, but Magic, I think it just exploded the space. He casts a, a, a huge shadow um, because the whole idea of, like, there's this world that you can kind of explore and play within, I think was pretty new. I mean, just, just the. I mean, at this point now, I'm old and I don't have a lot of time. Any game that comes out with like thousands of cards, I'm like, it's too much. Mm. I don't want to do it. Um, And it's really tough to fight against Magic in that space because Magic has so many people. Because part of the, I'm going to say the biggest part of the stickiness, it's not just the like fascination with mechanics and how they work and the synergies and like. That whole part is really exciting, kind of like a, a scientist, like I said, you know, like discovering things. But without the community, it's kind of empty in the end, hmm. you know. So, so magic just has a foothold. I mean, you know, you can go to any game store, any game store around here, or or, or most any game store, and there is like a magic community, and uh, and even like and and it's often a fairly big percentage of the money they make. you know through these cards but the they don't the the company like the game stores that make money off the magic cards they they um cultivate a community of players Mm. you know and so there's there's people playing and talking and this is good no that's not good and they're discussing and they're having fun together you know and so i feel like it's tough to 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 carve out a new community when everyone's kind of already involved in magic, you know, who, who want to be involved in kind of like a lifestyle game like that. But
1: um, yeah, the impact is huge, for sure. So I want to talk now about your current venture, and this is North Star Games. So in the notes you sent me, you said you you came up with the name of this company whilst on the fishing boat. Can you tell us that story? <laughs> um, Well, did did I actually say that? I, I think so. I mean, unless I unless I dreamt it, I'm pretty sure you did. Um, well, I didn't come up with the name. Uh, so
2: there. So I I have this story describing one of the many times that I almost sank, and this was one of the one of the three times where like we really almost sank. Um, and basically, it's my first season, actually. Uh, we were going in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden, uh, what happened? My radio went dead, and my Loran went dead. So our navigation system went dead. Uh, and all of our electronics, yeah, my windshield wipers stopped going, just everything dead. And so, you know, we figured the batteries got disconnected, open up the, the floorboards, and there was water that had covered the batteries. So mm-hmm. we had a massive amount of water in our in our um, uh, engine room. And we so all of our bilge pumps are electronic, so we didn't have any pumps. Um, and so we had one hydraulic pump working off the engine, and the engine w- would have died as soon as water went above the air filter. Now, the air filter was at the top of the engine, so we still had another maybe couple feet before it was going to cover the, the air filter. But um, we had to, you know, figure out how we were taking on water and then pump out. And we had no radio, so we couldn't contact anyone and let them know. And we had no navigation system, no depth founders. We didn't know, like, if we're going over sandbars. And um, I had to – and the the windshield wipers weren't working. So I had to go to the flying bridge and guide my ship um, to safe harbor. Um, And so that's the story that we tell – for the founding of Northstar Games, um, because I did vow to myself up there on the flying bridge that I'm going to stop doing this fishing thing sometime, and I'm going to start this company that I really want to start.
1: And so, what was your original intention for the company?
2: Um, but uh, but I do want to just say quickly, I did not decide the name for the company then.
1: It's it just I, I did have a look here, and it says that you. Uh, Guided your boat home to the harbor by the North Star, so I might have I might have made the connection myself.
2: That is completely fabricated to retrofit to to, to explain the name. So North Star Games was a throwback to my fishing, hmm. but that one part of the story is completely fabricated. So don't believe that one part of the story. That well, is not where the, the that is when the you know that is like one of the many impetuses saying. I'm going to start this company. But then I wanted to tie it into the company name, and so that that was thrown in there.
1: Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> yeah, so, so what was the original intention for North Star Games?
2: Um, so our business plan uh, was to use the... Um, Advances that were taking place because of the Spiel des Jahres in Germany, Mm. um, and to make better games than we had in the U.S. And so, what what, um, Rio Grande and Mayfair were doing at the time were just like taking the exact games that were working in Germany and then just translating them and selling them here. And we thought um, that was too much. This through my testing, these games were just too much for the American audience. They just Mm. didn't like. They just it was too much. And so what I wanted to do is go to where they were at and create games with better mechanics that um, solved a lot of the issues like, you know, Monopoly, where you don't know how long the game's going to last or uh, you might get knocked out and a lot of downtime between turns. So there were all these issues we wrote down, like all these design issues that we wanted to make sure our game solved and we wanted to create an, an audience in the US and then slowly uh, bring them more and more into strategy games um, that was the business plan. I don't think we really followed through on that.
1: So you had a lot of big hits. I mean, Say Anything and and Apples to Apples. I mean, huge, uh, sorry, with some wages, huge, huge hits. Yeah. How quickly did the company expand? Oh, too quickly. We <laughs> exploded.
2: And like none of us were really good at business. We were uh, the two – the two people running the company were, were uh, liberal arts backgrounds. <laughs> um, yeah, we exploded. Uh, wits and wagers uh, grew, God, at 100% a year for a while and even, like, more. And then it was still just, it, like, grew for 10, 10 years straight or more, 12 years straight. Um, yeah, and so we grew up to about... 20-something people in-house, you know, employees, like full-time employees, and then another seven, some f- full-time contractors and overseas mm. people. So we had about 30 people working full-time for the company at,
1: at the height. And, and so you said in, in the bio that you watched everything crumble. And I, I remember you, you wrote quite an impassioned piece on, on Board Game Geek about the state of North Star Games. What happened there?
2: <laughs> I wish it had, a, like, a really simple explanation. I don't think it does. Um, one of the big issues is we. I had a co-presidency with someone who I really liked and really respected. Um, and at some point, you know, I wanted to give him, like, his domain. And so mm-hmm. he kind of ran... Uh, the mass market stuff and the specialty toy stuff. And I started then doing hobby stuff because once hobby started growing, I was like, oh, maybe I can have a viable company and hobby, which is where I wanted to be from the start. And so really, I think at its core, there were just several different companies doing different things and fighting for resources um, and not not overtly fighting, um, but, but um, just... Actually, like fighting, like uh, it, there weren't like satish and I fighting over this. It was like, well, let's take people off of from here and move them over here, and let's do these things, and and so, and the brand that's needed for these different worlds are just different,
1: hmm. and
2: the skills that are needed are different. Um, The only skills that are the same is the supply chain, so the the manufacturing and the shipping and the warehousing uh, and the accounting and everything else, which is really the more sophisticated and more important side of things, which is the game design and the marketing Hmm. uh, and the brand and the graphics, like all of the creative side are just, there's like basically no overlap. And in fact, if you're good at one, you're often worse the other Mm. so if you understand how games fit into what i'm going to just say a mom's life or a parent's life as they're changing diapers and they're running around they're they're you know managing a family the the games place a very very different need than what i call and boys in a basement which i have to Mm. fall into who have a lot of time in their hands and they're not really wanting to do their schoolwork they're like they want to hang out and they want to three, they, they can spend all day on a thing, you know, like a five-hour extravaganza into this very complicated world. And the the words, the trigger words that get them excited and the way they view the world and what they're looking for are just diametrically opposed, such that mom looks at the game that they, these boys are playing and just goes, who would ever play that? That just seems dumb. Hmm. And vice versa, the boys would look at these games and go like, I, why do they create games for stupid people? Like, they're convinced that the people that play these simple games are just mentally dumb, which they're not. Um, and so trying to have a brand that bridges these two worlds, I think is is untenable without um, being big enough to really create two different companies.
1: And so, you know, I, I remember... Say anything first coming into my purview when it was on tabletop. How big was the Will Wheaton bounce after that?
2: Well, normally, normally it'd be huge, but we were already in Target, mm. so it was just a small bump for us. But it was a bump in hobby for right. us. Um, t- so Target, Target's just much bigger than than Will Wheaton, right? But yeah, so um, it, it was nice, though. I mean, it, it, helped, it helped us kind of get on the radar in hobby, and it definitely helped in hobby. But and, I, I would say compared to like our, it, it, you know, that year that it came out, it, it may have bumped us 5% of
1: our sales hmm. or something like that. And sort of how close was the company to to shutting its doors?
2: Oh, we were just going, we were going to shut our doors. I was already liquef- liquidating everything. Um, so, so I, I was kind of the doomsday uh, uh, person in our company mm. saying like, we're going bankrupt. We need, you know, this is in management meetings. We need to release half of our employees and we need to just completely restructure like this. We're sinking. Like we can't keep doing this. We ended up losing $3.7 million over six years.
1: Mm.
2: And um and I think, I think it was just hard for people to accept, like, the truth, um, of what was happening. And so it was like, oh, well, this next game and this, and we're changing this, and this is gonna work here, and, and, um, it just wasn't enough. And so I, I have often been kind of like, I just didn't want to be the bad guy. I've been the bad guy before, and I I was tired of it. So it was, so I was like, okay, I'm gonna just I guess play chicken with the company and just keep watching it fall apart. Um, and then when I finally was like, maybe being I mean I was pretty assertive in our in our meetings, but everyone was so busy. Like the way of dealing with the sinking ship was like working harder, but not smarter, mm. not like, right. not like strategically doing the right thing. It was just like, do more of the wrong thing. Um, and I, I just did not have the sophistication to like communicate vision and get people on board. Um, and people, and like Satish was too busy. I couldn't really get his time. And then what happened at some point is he had cancer. Um, and so for several years he had cancer. And, and so anytime when I pushed to like we need to let go of employees and like regroup and figure out how we're going to make this company work. He would say, I can't lose this person. I can't lose it. Like that work will come to me and I can't do any more work. Hmm. And so he just would shut down anytime we'd come down to those conversations. And I wasn't going to push, like my only option at that point was to um, go to shareholders and kind of try to push Satish out of the company, which I wasn't going to do. So, so I just watched like my retirement kind of burn away.
1: Uh, and so how did you rescue the company and, and where is the company now?
2: Well, so we'll see how well, so we'll see about the rescue. Um, so we had a $2 million debt. Uh, we sold a piece of the company. We're licensing um, our mass market games to another company that were like in the f- that's that's my big project for today is going to be working on these contracts um, and we are we're down to about maybe nine people plus mm. some digital overseas people. so um, we'll we'll still have to figure out the fate of digital it's it's um, digital has been like a big money losing venture for us mm. um, but I instead decided to get rid of mass and get rid of toy and specialty both of which were tenuous, uh, like they, we weren't managing, we were losing money in specialty, which we've been losing for like 10 years. Um, and then in mass, well, like we, were, that was our bread and butter for a long time, but there were some years where we were losing money in mass too, and, and we weren't really facing why or how or dealing with how, how to change that. <laughs> um, and honestly, we're just not sophisticated enough for mass right now. There's just a lot more competition there. And, um and our only way to really stay in mass is to have a grassroots swelling of people that love us and the only way to really have that is is to be loved in hobby and so mm. we kind of left hobby and tried to just do mass on its own the only way to do that really is to license Hollywood games and we weren't we weren't into like the licensing world um, and I don't want to be like that's not why I came into games I, I'm not you know that's that's a different that's a different skill set and something that I'm just not interested on in the marketing side. I really am interested on the game design side and mm. crafting games. So hobby is just a, a place that's much better suited for, for my skills and for what I love for my passion. Um. So, yeah, so now we're a hobby company and we're still kind of finishing out this transition. And, and um, I was able to really spend a lot of time figuring out like what are the important skills we need for hobby? Because now, instead of, we, we used to ha- be in four different channels serving three different customers, which made it really difficult to figure out, like, what's our brand and how do we move forward? Um, and so once I just put a stake in it and said, this is this is our company and this is who we are, then I could figure out what are the job skills that we need to fulfill this and then start putting together, like, a team of really good people. Because um, I, I think what we had done in the past is we had hired sometimes uh, just a lot of the wrong people that, that didn't have the skills they needed for the jobs that they were doing. Hmm. Uh, and we, and the thought was, we will grow in-house talent. Like we will, we will figure it out and, and make it work and grow talent in-house. And now my theory is, let's not do that. Let's find someone that has the experience and good judgment for those tasks ahead of time and just pay whatever it takes because it's too expensive to not have someone who who is skilled at the job that they're trying to do.
1: So your next game then is Advanced Civilization. So the original Civilization, the Francis Tresham game, how important do you think that game is, not just to analog gaming, but to digital gaming as well?
2: Yeah, critical. I mean, Civilization was a huge video game brand. Yeah, yeah. It's a, and it's a fantastic game still. It just takes all day. I've never finished it. <laughs> uh, and, and that's the reason I'm taking it is I've never finished the game. I want to pl- pl- play all the way through till it ends.
1: And, and so how does this game, the Advanced Civilization, how does that play off the original version? Just the original
2: version of Civilization? I bought them both together, so I never mm. played one without the other. So I don't even remember.
1: Like, to me, there's just one game. It's called Advanced Civilization. Uff. And have you ever tried to So you said you've never completed it. Have you ever. So a friend of mine bought the game that I consider probably the most impossible to ever get to the table, and that's that's Mega Civ, which is 18 people and it takes two days to play. Have you ever even attempted that feat? Mega Civ? Hmm. No, I have not. Would no, you? I would would you be either. tempted?
2: Yeah, but you know why I would be tempted. I I ran a game like that in high school. I ran a Mega Civ game. Um. So yeah, I'd be I'd definitely be tempted not to run it, but to play. That'd be fun. And and what was this game in high school? Well, I think it was it was it was kind of me taking Dungeons and Dragons where I was a ma- dungeon master. Well, actually, I, I created my own system. We just role played. We didn't use Dungeons and Dragons, but I was I role played a, um, a kind of like an advanced civilization game, um, where you could uh, research technologies, and you know, and so I, I was like the dungeon master, and and you didn't know where the other people were, but I had the map, and you'd explore, and um, it was. I don't really know what this Mega Civ game is, but I just know what I did in, in high school.
1: And so, you know, when I think of your games, I think of, you know, I think of Evolution, which is, which is a wonderful game, but, but in terms of weight, a lot lighter than, than Civilization. I mean, has this game inspired your design? Has it, you know, have you taken things from this game and, and put it into the games that you've designed yourself?
2: Well, I've been tinkering with Civ games for a long time. Just no- nothing that's that's finally, like, that's come out yet, you know, or even good enough yet. Um, but I still plan to do a Civ game. Um, you know, the biggest problem for me is that balance between being able to get it to the table and that sense of epic.
0: Hmm.
2: Uh, and I would lean towards, at this point, just being able to get it to the table. Um, but have I learned a lot? I mean... It's more, I haven't played it recently, so it's more nostalgic love for this game that mm. I uh, like, that inspires me. And in, the reason in, it inspires me is like thinking about history and the arc of history and how,
1: you know, what things influence the arc of history. So I want to talk now about the future. So, so what's coming from North Star in the future?
2: Ah, well, we have a Kickstarter that goes live October 12th. And it is a cooperative puzzle game uh, set in the world of Alice in Wonderland. The players are the royal Gardens gardeners, sorry, and they're trying to decorate the royal garden in a way that pleases the queen. And as they will soon learn, the queen really doesn't care about her garden. She just wants to chop off their heads. Um, and so it's a 60-minute uh, two to five players cooperative deduction game. And really, really tight, really tight game and brings out the theme of the queen chasing after you. And, and it also has this a really interesting mechanic that adjusts to the skill of the players so that every game ends up being tense. And that's without any additional setup or changing anything at the beginning. It just auto-adjusts during the gameplay.
1: So what lessons have you learned from the past that you hope to take into the future of Northstar Well um having one brand very important um the
2: the mass market kind of pulled us into like more transactional work like seasonal let's optimizing money right now and I'm always prefer to think long term and, and so really just kind of a a long-term vision on slowly building a brand and doing the things you need to build the brand, which is, you know, crafting really good games. And in hobby, people love like over-the-top fantastic components. And so like you'll notice the deluxe edition of Paint the Roses is really, really slick. Mm. And the art has to be top of the line. So, So everything in this space, I feel like just needs to be top of the line. And, you know, I think if you look at our new game paint the roses you'll see like what level of quality to expect from us moving forward in the future
1: and and where do you want North star to be in the next five years um i just want to be a
2: well-loved hobby game company and hobby to me means um people say i'm a gamer you know Mm. and these are games that they play. Like my parents don't call themselves gamers. They love games, but they play party games. They, you know, they, they, they just wouldn't call themselves a gamer. Um, And so to me, we're servicing the people that call themselves gamers. And, and the reason is there's just a lot of interesting uh, space in there to work with. Like we can do artistic things. We can do academic things. We can do frivolous, fun, fantasy, science fiction. We can do party games. Like they're, the The people who call themselves game gamers use the medium to explore a, just a lot of different things, and so there's a lot of interesting uh creative aspects
1: to explore and so if you think back to your your impact on the gaming world, whether it, whether it be mass market or hobby, what do you think that's been?
2: <laughs> that's a good question. Um, let's see. We sold about three million copies of our games, so or of of games that I've designed, actually. So I feel like, you know, that's that's, I'm pretty pleased with that. Mm. Um, but I don't think anything has like impacted hobby that well. Hobby kind of knows us for evolution. Um, and I don't even think it was super well loved in like the tabletop hobby world. Um as much as I would like. So, so my plan for the future is to just tailor th- the games better for the tabletop market. So Evolution ca- plays a little more to Boys in a Basement. Mm. It's um, it's more of a like a high-skill, competitive, high-stress game. So I'm trying to figure out how to design a game that meets the game-playing environment right now where people are getting together with friends, they're more casual, there's some good players, some not very good players... And how do we create rules that are easy to teach and bring people into an engaging world um, that's not going to m- make them feel like they're getting picked on or make them feel bad, regardless of their skill level?
1: So that, that's what I'm working on right now. So your final game then is uh, maybe the most contentious game in gaming history and this is diplomacy is it really as harsh as it's portrayed um well we're gonna die in this cabin right i mean especially if we play diplomacy with each other yeah
2: i mean if we're gonna die anyways we might as well play diplomacy because it's (laughs) we're just gonna die um is it as contentious so it can be yes it can be viscerally it can be
1: I have seen people super visceral over this game. So, so I, I love this game and, you know, every time I've played it, it is, it is, you know, the reason I love it is because I'm an actor and I'm gregarious and I'm outgoing and so much of this game is talking. Yet I have friends who have played this game a lot, both online and in person, and they're kind of experts at it. And it seems to me that when they talk about the game, what they're focusing on is not that social interaction level. At high levels of play, does this game lose that and become a game of moving pieces on a board?
2: No, absolutely not. I went to World Championships once here in, in, in uh, DC. Absolutely not. It is a game. Now, it's, it's like poker. It's got a backbone mm. of strategy. And so at the highest level, you need to understand that. And then it's a game. It's so interesting because when I think of boys in a basement, like magic players, um, especially lifestyle gamers, they are not the diplomacy players were not like them. Mm. They were very social. And very comfortable being social. Um, And so very, let's just say, diplomatic. No, they're not like nerds in a spreadsheet just Mm. analyzing stuff at all. Not at all. It's a really fun environment. They're very social.
1: And so this this is a game that was designed in the 50s, I believe. And, you know, it's still being played to this day. Why do you think that is?
2: It's an amazing game. I mean, just, you know, like you say, you play it as an actor and you love it. I love it. I don't, I don't backstab just because that's not really in my personality. <laughs> um, but you can go really far without backstabbing. And in fact, I've never finished a game of diplomacy really because I've just been on the winning alliance. Hmm. And and then, you know, people always said, well, one of you has to backstab. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to. And, and for some reason, I guess I partner up with people that don't want to backstab either. And they're like, I'm not either. I'm like, all right, well, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> um, why is it. Why is it so good? So it creates something which is very real in the world, which is you're not powerful enough to do anything you really want to do on your own. Hmm. And so you have to work together and you have to build alliances and a lot of people think then you have to backstab, and I, I'm not really sure why you have to, um, because honestly, I love the game itself, like playing. I don't need to win to love this game. I, I love the gameplay. and I love trying to figure out who's doing what and why and who might backstab and how to navigate the wor- how to navigate the gameplay world. For me, without lying, because
1: I don't want to lie. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's well. It's 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 a super well designed game.
1: So I've got one last question for you then. Yeah. So you're 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 heading out to the cabin down the road, eighty eight miles an hour, and you you go around the corner and the the 88. back door. Yeah, eighty eight miles an hour. That's and- where the. That's where I can. Uh, go through time right that's well well, fingers crossed this is the thing you can go back in time you're the first person i'm sure you're not the first person to have recognized that reference but you're the first person (laughs) to have actually said anything about it so you go down the road and you go around a corner and the the back door of the car flies open four of the games fly out down a ravine into a river and are swept away to posterity which game do you hope is sitting on the back seat of the car oh how much time am i in this cabin for uh, well, until the apocalypse is over. So looking at our current real-life situation, it, it could be any time. It could be years. Yeah. Then I'm keeping
2: Magic the Gathering.
1: Excellent. So if people want to get hold of you, if they want to see how they can back-paint the roses, how how do they go about doing that? Oh, great idea. Um, so
2: I'm on Twitter at dcrapuchettes um and uh the company is at North Star Games on Twitter uh the company has a Facebook page and a website northstargames.com and you can subscribe to our mailing list go to our website subscribe to our ma- mailing list and in fact aha sales pitch um if you uh sign up on our mailing list right now not not our main mailing list just a mailing list to be notified for Paint the Roses when it goes live um you and you back you will get a free cheshire kitten promo wonderful for signing up to be notified
1: brilliant and you almost pronounced cheshire correct then oh (laughs) shiza cheshire (laughs) well dominic crapuchette thank you very much ben
2: you i have been a pleasure thank you
1: You can support the show in many ways. You can tell your friends, you can talk about it on social media, you can talk about it on your own blog, podcast or video, or you can support it directly by going to patreon.com forward slash 5g4d for a rolling donation, or for a one-off donation, hitting the PayPal link at the bottom of the website, 5gamesfordoomsday.com. It's these donations that keep the show going. Also, if you want to say something nice about the show or if you want to say something horrible about the show, you can contact me on Twitter at 5Games4Doomsday or send me an email at 5 games doomsday at gmail.com. And if I've succeeded in hobbling away from the anti-vax Donkey Kongs and the break-dancing anchovies, I'll see you in two weeks for another 5 games for doomsday